title of the sermon is Pluck Out Your Eye, Mark 9, 38 through 50. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not for us, or whoever is not against us, is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it'd be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Steve. Um, before we look at God's word, um, I'd like us to pray. Um, Olga, who does our hospitality, found out um, that she's got a very serious health problem. Uh, she's going to visit a surgeon on Tuesday. Uh, I prayed with her yesterday. I'm going to pray with her tomorrow. She is, uh, she's frightened. And uh, she's asked for prayer. If those of you who know her, this would be a good time to reach out to her. Uh, and let's pray for her right now. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Olga in our life and the life of our church. And Lord, as she faces this health challenge right now, we pray that you would bring her comfort and peace, that you would quiet her fears with your presence, and that um, you would work through your Holy Spirit in restoring her body and through the medicine, through the doctors, through the surgeons as they seek to help her. Lord, work with her through this and show us as a church how to support our sister and come alongside her uh, in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, back to plucking out eyes. Um, those of you who have been coming for a while, you know that we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John, and is perhaps the most vivid based on Peter's reminiscences of his time with Jesus. And it's very direct. It's very much centered on what Jesus did. There's no, not much speculation. Peter was a fisherman, an uneducated man. He just tells it like it is. And we've seen that in the, in the middle of the Gospel, there are 16 chapters. We are now in chapter 9. There's a pivot. There's the moment that Jesus is acknowledged as the Messiah, that is the Christ, the anointed one of God, by Peter. And from that point on, the whole story changes. Instead of traveling around Galilee and northern Israel, teaching and healing crowds of people, Jesus begins his march, his death march to Jerusalem, to the cross. We've seen him challenge the disciples who are following him and all future disciples. 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We've seen him on the top of uh, a mountain be, be transfigured and show, give a glimpse to the disciples of what the glorified Christ will be and a glimpse of what they will become if they are faithful in following him. He's talked to them about the cross and the fact that he's going to be raised in three days. He's challenged them about what it means to be a Christian leader. The first must be last and servant of all. And now he gives them a lesson in the dangers and challenges of being a Christian leader, being in ministry, what to look out for, what to be aware of. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. If you recall, while Jesus was up the mountain uh, in his transfiguration, the disciples were attempting to drive out demons, and they didn't, it didn't work. They were embarrassed in front of the crowds. So clearly this is a point of discussion and um, uh, debate, division amongst them. Are they really on the in crowd? Do they really have Christ's power? And what do you do with people who are outside the disciples? How should you think about them? Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. For whoever is not against us is for us. It is a scandal of the Christian church that a church that, that proclaims that it has the single truth, follows a single Lord, is part of a single family, would be so divided. There are Orthodox Christians, there are Catholic Christians, there are Protestant Christians. There's been a proliferation of denominations and movements, and it is a scandal because what it witnesses is division, not the unity and truth of who Jesus is. And right from the beginning, right here, you see Jesus telling his disciples don't be worried about your status. Don't be worried about being considered the in crowd. It is not about you. Anyone who is working in my name, you should be pleased about that. They are not your enemy. They are not your problem. They are to be celebrated. They are to be acknowledged. You know, for many people in the church, this is a, a tough thing to hear. Many people define themselves in terms of denomination or their particular church. You know, if you grew up in the South, you know it's basically Christendom, and it's, everybody's a Christian. And so you define your Christianity by which kind of Christian you are. Which denomination do you go to? One of the things that's good about New York is that it doesn't exist here. If you can find anybody will say Jesus is Lord, that is a thrill. <laughs> and so we don't worry about denominations up here. Anyone who's on our side is on our side. Christ is at work in the world. And any time we see somebody who is doing something in his name, we should celebrate that fact. 
truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Notice it's talking about someone aiding somebody who is, belongs to the Messiah, somebody who's a Christian. It is saying that non-Christians can be about the business of God. No matter how small, you know, a cup of water, that is a trivial way of helping somebody. No matter how small, anybody that is working towards the goals that Christ has brought into the world, we should be supporting. Think of all the charities, the non-for-profit organizations, the movements in the world for justice, for human rights, the movements that feed people, try to improve the world. Think of medicine. Think of science. Think of all the ways that people are trying to help other people thrive. Christians should recognize that those people, those organizations, those institutions are on our side. They are with us. We should be happy to work with non-Christians in helping the world thrive, to help people thrive. Small things matter. And we should pay attention to every one of them and not look to divide ourselves from the good things that are happening and the good people that are doing good work in the world, no matter what they call themselves. But there is a, there is a danger. I can't fully articulate this, but um, the spiritual world, I think, is much riskier and more complicated than we know. There is actually a warning about doing things without the support of Jesus' name or Jesus' authority. In the book of Acts, there's this wonderful story. Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits. They tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul, I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil, then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Yes, we are on the side of anybody who's doing God's work, but we should always remember that the stakes are high in the spiritual world. And it is only a Christian who possesses the Holy Spirit who has nothing to fear in this world. If you have the Holy Spirit, you belong to God. You can go up against any power, any spirit, any dark place, any institution, any group of people anywhere in the world without fear because you have the Holy Spirit, because you're a baptized Christian. There's no such thing as sort of spiritual entrepreneurship. Yes, there are people doing God's work, but we should never think that we can do it without Christ, without the Holy Spirit. The real problem is not people who are doing God's work outside the church, the real problem that Jesus wants to warn his disciples about are Christians getting in the way of God's work. That's what, to, to Jesus, that's where the real problem lies. 
verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. This phrase, these little ones, Mark only uses it here in his gospel, but it's used uh, repeatedly in the other gospels. It's clearly something, a phrase that Jesus used a lot. And it refers to people who are following him, the little ones who believe in him. That is, those who are listening to his message. He's talking about Christians. What does it mean if you cause a Christian to stumble? What does that mean? Why is that worth dying for? Why should you die rather than do that? Well, it helps to understand this word, word to stumble. It is the Greek word skandilion where we get our English word scandal from. It means to entice somebody to sin, to offend, to so scandalize a person that they stop following somebody. And in the Christian context, it means scandalizing the church and those who would follow Christ, becoming the problem, causing those who are trying to follow Christ to stumble, to stop following Jesus, to lose trust or faith in him, because you're so outrageous, you're so scandalous, you're so stupid. That's the warning to Christians. Don't be the kind of leader in the church who is going to cause people to turn away from the church. You know, the image that pops into my mind as soon as I think about this, maybe I'm, I'm older than most of you, but in the 80s, there was a, a group of TV evangelists and um, they would come on, they had planes and palaces and cars and all kinds of money, and they would come on begging people for money for their TV ministry. And they would weep. There was one woman, I think it was Tammy something Baker. She would always have heavy mascara, and so when she wept, it would just flood down her face, and she would cry, just, just give, just give. And to my English sensibilities, she was... A scandal. In fact, uh, many people in England thought that uh, American Christianity was just insane because of her and people like her. And of course, their ministries all blew up. They did scandalize the church. It turned out that they had at the core of their ministry a corruption. Think how many times this has happened that you know about in the Christian church. Somebody in a position of authority somebody who's in a position to witness the goodness of Christ, scandalizes the church, scandalizes a congregation, is found to be doing something so uh, repellent, so in opposition to everything they're saying, that their hypocrisy turns people away from Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. He's not worried about other people in the world who are doing good things. He's worried about Christians working in Jesus' name, his name, with his authority, with a position in his church, scandalizing the church, not living up to the promise of the gospel, turning people, repelling people, rather than drawing, him, drawing people to the goodness of who Jesus is. It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their necks and they were thrown into the sea. Rather than the spiritual death that, tu that turning away from Jesus 
results in, it would be better to have a physical death because the stakes are so high. You do not want to spiritually shipwreck someone. You don't want to cause them to stumble on their journey towards God through Christ. You don't want to get in the way. I guess the, the main point, at least do no harm. Don't get in other people's way as they seek Christ. And then he starts to talk about hell. There's a certain amount of hyperbole here. You know, he's talking about chopping bits of your body off. Um, there's no record, by the way, that Jesus chopped anything off. There's no record that his disciples chopped anything off. There's no record of the early church or followers of Jesus chopping bits off each other. So there is definitely some hyperbole here. But the point is, the stakes are so high. Sin is like a fire. Once it gets hold, it can burn the whole house down. We should take it very, very seriously. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. If your hand causes you to stumble, that is, if your hand causes you to stumble in your ability to follow Christ, gets in the way, causes you to doubt, leads you away from Jesus, it is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell where the fire never goes out. Now, the metaphor is not expanded. It's for you and I to decide what it is that we can do with our hands that might get in our way. It's obviously some activity. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. Your feet take you to places perhaps that you shouldn't be, perhaps where you typically do something that gets in the way of your relationship with God. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Your eye is something that you habitually look at or pay attention to. And it doesn't have to be lewd or sordid. How many hours do you and I, I do it myself, I've, I've noticed, spend watching Netflix or looking at computers or smartphones. Ephemeral images that catch our attention and just lock us in so that we don't pay attention to other people or the world or go get about the business of life. I have a dog I've had him for 10 years, a wonderful dog, Benjamin. When I first got him as a puppy, I would go to the, uh, the dog run in Hoboken and it was a social scene. Everybody talked to each other it was like a little club, the dog owners of Hoboken. And they, we would do trips together. We'd go to restaurants together. It was a whole social scene. Now, if you go to the same dog run, you'll see everybody sitting around, isolated, looking at their smartphones, oftentimes with earplugs in, not talking to anybody. I was walking home um, over the winter, dark night, and I looked in through the window of a basement apartment and there were three people there watching TV. They're all slumped on the sofas, slack-jawed, glazed eyes, unmoving, in this eerie blue light from the TV. It really is a blue light. And they looked like zombies. 
or somebody kind of possessed with some alien light, you know, like rabbits in the headlights, just like, they didn't look human, unmoving. I'm not suggesting you pluck your eyes out, but it's worth looking at your life and thinking, what are the habits in my life that stop me from having a relationship with God? Remember, the word sin means to miss the mark. We should be aiming at God. That is our goal. That's what we're aiming for. Sin is anything that causes us to lose that aim. Anything that gets in the way of that aim, that goal. What are the things in your life? And by the way, when I talked about things your hands do, things your feet do, things your eyes do, every one of you immediately thought of something. If it gets in your way of coming eventually to face God, then you should remove it from your life. That's what he's saying here. But we have to address this idea of hell. By the way, Jesus demonstrates right here that he is a hellfire preacher. That's what he's doing right here. What does that mean? It's not a very popular idea nowadays. What does hell mean? What is Jesus talking about? Well, in his time, hell was a literal place. The English word hell is taken from the Greek word Gehenna, which itself is a translation of a Hebrew word, a Hebrew place name, actually, Gehinnom, which was a valley close to Jerusalem. It was a place where when Jesus was chasing after the gods of the countries around it, when it was sinning against God, that was the place that there was a temple for Molech, where they would have a fire, and you would throw your firstborn child into that fire to guarantee that your crops came in. You gave to Molech your live child, and in return he gave you life, gave you crops, gave you, allowed you to flourish. It was the major idolatry and abomination of Israel. It's one of the reasons that God repeatedly sends judgment and sends prophets to Israel. So this valley, the Valley of Hinnon, had a terrible, terrible reputation. And in Jesus' time, that's where they used to burn the trash. So hell, Gehenna, was a physical place where Jerusalem's trash was dumped and burnt. It was the trash heap of Jerusalem. And when Jesus says, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fear is not quenched, he's quoting from Isaiah where Isaiah gives Israel a vision of all those who reject him. And he imagines it, he shows it, or portrays it as a battlefield, an old battlefield full of dead bodies, decaying bodies, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. So the sense of hell is those that are outside of Jerusalem, outside of the people of God, who are not in relationship with him. That's the primary idea of hell. It is an eternity without God, the source of life. And the stakes of missing that are so high 
that Jesus here is saying, pluck out your eye, chop off your hand, chop off a foot. A spiritual death, that is an eternity without God, is a horror. It is destruction. It is to be, become trash, is what he's saying. Now, all through the Bible, there are references to hell. If, and the whole premise of the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is premised on the idea that there is a cost in disobeying God, that there is such a thing as divine justice. And we see here, Jesus is bringing it up as a warning to his disciples. How should we think about it? Well, it's caused a lot of problem in the history of the Christian church because it is such an appalling idea. I find it the most difficult aspect of Christianity. The idea that a loving, just God would allow people to go to hell. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. And yet, if it's not true, then the Bible isn't true. And Jesus is not telling the truth. And the whole journey to the cross makes no sense. If you get rid of hell, you get rid of the meaning of the cross. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. What on earth is Jesus talking about? It's cryptic. You have to look at the Old Testament to make sense of this. In the Old Testament, salt is part of sacrifice. In the rules for sacrifice we read in Leviticus, there's this. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings and add salt to all your offerings. Salt was an aspect of sacrifice because salt, remember this is an age before uh, refrigeration, salt was the only way that you could uh, preserve something. It was the only way you could store things long term. It prevented corruption. It gave flavor. It was a seasoning. And Jesus calls his disciples, the presence of the church in the world, a seasoning. Christians are the salt of the earth. And so salt is a symbol, a sign of God's grace in the world. Paul says this. This is Colossians. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So salt is a symbol for God's grace and presence in the world, preventing the, corru the, the corruption and the decay of the world. And so what is he saying here? Remember the context. He is preparing his disciples for the cross. They're on their journey to the cross. He's warned them that they have to serve each other. He's warned them not to be jealous of people doing good in the world independent of them. He's warned them that the biggest problem you should be worried about is getting in the way of the gospel, causing others to stumble. 
But the burden of that is overwhelming. Who would want to be a minister if you have to take responsibility for other people's journey to God? The whole Bible says we're sinful. The whole Bible says that we're imperfect. The whole Bible says we're going to screw up. You know, when I became a pastor, one of the warnings, I, I received this from several pastors, was, Tony, you are going to screw up. And there are going to be people who tell you you've screwed up, sometimes publicly. And it's going to be awful. It's going to happen. And the only defense that you have, well, one defense is to run away in a sailboat and get drunk somewhere. But the only other Christian defense is to remember that God loves you. To understand grace. What is grace? It is the fact that Jesus died for sinful men and women. Jesus died for you, and he died for me. Why? Because we're not perfect. Because we needed to be saved from ourselves. We cannot get it right by ourselves. We cannot save other people by ourselves. The only way it can possibly work is if Christ does it through us. And you've got to believe deep down in your soul that in Christ there is now no condemnation. Otherwise, you will never do ministry. It's too overwhelming. It's too frightening. The stakes are too high. And if you take it on yourself alone, you'll be crushed. By the way, why, why do churches blow up? Why do pastors and ministry leaders blow up all the time? The reason is, I, I believe, based on my experience in ministry, is people treat you as if you're a holy person. You're a good person when you're a pastor. But you know inside you're not. You're the same old person you ever were. Same old terrible habits. Same terrible thoughts. Same terrible patterns of life. You're, I'm, I'm always going to be Tony. I'm going to have to carry that burden of Toniness for the rest of my life. And yet I'm a pastor. Now, everyone's thinking, oh, I don't treat Tony like that. But you do. You do. Early on in my career, I had um, a party in Manhattan, and it was when I was an intern. So I invited people from the church and people from seminary, and we all got together for this party. And friends from seminary were reminiscing about the terrible things we used to do there. And one of the things that we used to do at Princeton Seminary was raid the graduate students' kitchens, because they used to raid our kitchens. And the goal was to steal hot dogs from each other. And that was, that was like the prize. If you get one hot dog from the graduate student's kitchen, you'd won. And they would do the same to us. So we're reminiscing about this. And suddenly in the middle of it, this woman, she, she just stood up and she marched out of the room, clearly very upset. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what's just happened? And I followed her out and I asked her and she said, you're my pastor. I don't want to hear about you stealing hot dogs. I expect you to be a good man. I don't want Tony with feet of clay. I want an example. She said explicitly to me, face to face. And I realized there is a gap between the persona or pastor or minister or Christian in the world and the reality. And if we don't fill that gap with grace, there's now no condemnation for those who believe in Christ. 
If you don't fill it with grace, that gap is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger until the gap is so big that it destroys you. Your own hypocrisy destroys you. That's why people blow up. That's why things fall apart. We have to salt our ministry with the grace of God. We have to be seasoned with the reality that he was there for us when we screwed up. We have peace with God and peace with each other because of that grace. It is the only way that sinful people can be in community together. Have salt amongst yourselves and be at peace with each other. It's the only hope for our church. It's the only hope for the people in this room. It is the only hope if you're thinking about following Christ and becoming a disciple and doing ministry in his name. God's grace is the only thing that we can hold on to. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in Christ you have revealed a grace big enough for the worst of us. Lord, help us to hold on to that reality. Help us to hold on to that truth. Help us to remember the cost of you going to the cross, experiencing all the sufferings of hell so that we would not have to. Lord, make that the basis of our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.